Hi, I'm Michael Sunoff, founder and CEO of HardToFindSeminars.com. For the last five years, I've interviewed the world's best business and marketing minds. Along the way, I've created a successful publishing business, all from home, from my two-car garage. When my first child was born, he was very sick, and it was then that I knew I had to have a business that I could operate from home. Now my challenge is to build the world's largest free resource for online downloadable MP3 audio business interviews. I knew I needed a site that contained strategies, solutions, and inside angles to help you live better, to save and make more money, to stay healthier, and to get more out of life. I've learned a lot in the last five years, and today I'm going to show you the skills you need to survive. If you could think, pick one direct mail campaign that you're most proud of and that was the most exciting, what would it be? What sticks out in your mind? The most successful campaign I ever had. Hello, this is Herschel. Hi, Herschel. This is Michael Sunoff. We've been emailing the last couple... Hi, indeed, and now we're phone pals. How are you? Good, good. Good. It's nice to talk to you. Can I start from the beginning? Certainly. Let me ask you this. First of all, what, in a nutshell, what, how have you become uh, to where you are to have written this many books, and mostly, I, I assume, are all specifically on writing or copywriting? Well, are various facets of what I call force communication. And I want you to start from when you when you were a kid. Where were you born? I was born in Pittsburgh. Okay. And uh, I moved to Chicago. My father died when I was very young. How old? I was six. Mm-hmm. And a few years later, my mother moved us to Chicago, where I grew up really, and I went to school at Northwestern for years and years. Okay. We moved to Florida 23 years ago from Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Because I had two goals in life. One was one day to own a piece of property with a palm tree on it. Right. Which I couldn't do in Minneapolis. Right. And the other was to get away from that fur coat syndrome. Mm-hmm. How, how old were you when you moved from Chicago? When I moved from Chicago to, to Minneapolis? Yeah. I was in my 40s. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no. We had a, My wife, Margot, and I had a very good uh, marketing account then in Minneapolis. It was called Calhoun's Collectors Society. Mm-hmm. And it was really a full-time proposition for us. And we were re- really rocketing along with Calhoun's. I, we both had a background working with the Bradford Exchange in Chicago. But you were in Chicago till you were about 40. Yes. How, can I ask how old you are? I'm 73. Okay. My, dad's my, my dad is from Chicago. He's about the same age. What, um, what high school did you go to? Ben. Ben High School, which I, I'm told now... It's fallen on evil times, uh-huh. but many neighborhoods have. Okay. Yeah, I went to, that's, that's a long, long time ago. Right. I can still envision the image of the uh, the, the building itself. Yeah, my dad grew up in Lincoln Lincoln Park, or Lincoln, was it Lincolnwood? Well, there, there are two things. Lincoln Park is within the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Lincolnwood is, is northwest. Yeah, I think it was Lincolnwood. Lincoln Wood is where one of my publishers was until they sold the thing to McGraw-Hill. That's where National Textbook Company was. Uh-huh. 
in this era of consolidation, no companies tend to exist for very long. Right, right. That's I'll complete the history with some of that too. Well, what about? So, what were you doing until? What were you doing all those years in Chicago? Well, I had an advertising agency which was called Lewis Nelson and Con. I was also in the motion picture business. How long did you? When did you start your ad agency? I started the ad agency. In the middle 1950s, I believe. And how'd you get into that? What what led you to that? I was a school teacher. I taught English and the humanities at Mississippi State. Okay. There's a point in in many people's careers, especially in the when you're young and and, and full of hope and dream, that you believe the only civilized job is in academia. Right. To some extent, that's true, and there's a definite benefit in teaching things such as English literature in the Victorian era, because Robert Browning is not about to write any new poetry, so one set of lecture notes can last you a lifetime. Yeah. That is the benefit of it. Mm -hmm. The detriment is that even though the uh, uh, teachers are not abused, as you often will see in the press, you don't work a lot of hours, and the only nasty aspect is grading papers. Yeah. And you can get an assistant to do that. Everywhere. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's really, if, if you have any kind of ambition of, of changing the course of human history, it's a dead end. Correct. And uh, so I, I will cut through some of the, the fatty tissue that got me into that, but I wound up uh, eventually on the, <laughs> uh, in a radio station in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm where I was on the air from 6 to 9 in the morning and sold time the rest of the day, and I hated it from the day I got there. Mm-hmm. So I wound up immediately answering ads. And at the time, then, I was in the broadcasting business. And how old were you? Oh, I was in my age 20. And this was after your teaching? This was immediately after I was teaching. Okay, so you got out of teaching. I got out of teaching accidentally. Well, I had been offered a job, and by the time and I had to resign my position, you can't just quit on the college level for right. the semester. Mm-hmm. By the time the, the semester had run out, the fellow who had offered me the job was out of business. Okay. Nasty blow. One of a number of midlife crises, although that was well before midlife. Mm-hmm. Were you married then? I was married then, yeah. Mm-hmm. You have kids? Not then. Okay. All right, so you were you, you kind of introduced to advertising because you were uh, you were working for a radio station and you were selling advertising I space. Was selling at time all afternoon. Yes. Was that your first major uh, sales job? That was my well. When I was in school, I was selling encyclopedias door to door. Okay. At that time, Sears and Roebuck had a thing they called I think the Americana Encyclopedia. Sure. And I was out in the evening selling encyclopedias. You talk about a brutal job. And we, the, the one thing I learned from that, which I have since decided to implement absolutely in telemarketing scripts that I write, mm-hmm. no ad living. Right. Death and destruction, assuming that the original script is written by professionals. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, which Sears was. Right. And I learned with a lot of scar tissue that varying from that script always led to disaster. Well, how long did you sell encyclopedias? Oh, about a year. How'd you do? Were you good? I was not good. I wasn't terrible. I sold encyclopedias, mm-hmm. but I wasn't on their top ten list. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure it was probably a, a pivotal, pivotal um, experience in your life, that direct sales. In a sense, because it is an introduction to the, not just the world of salesmanship, but to the world of one-to-one salesmanship where resistance is a factor. Right. Whether that resistance is overt or passive, 
you learn a great deal, and I know a lot of people in the direct marketing business, for example, who are not out in there in the, in the marketplace getting their hands dirty mm -hmm. with the gutty aspect of saying, hey, these aren't just numbers out there. Mm -hmm. These are people, and we have to establish rapport with these people. That's one of my favorite words in marketing. Mm -hmm. Because without that, and now that, now that the uh, Internet has become such a major factor, without rapport, uh, you're wasting an awful lot of money. Come on. What got you out of the sewing encyclopedia? Why did you quit? I, because I graduated. Okay. In, and, well, no, there was nothing nasty about it. Yeah. And it, it, I, it didn't really, uh, I, I didn't like being out at night mm -hmm. uh, when I could be watching Captain Video or whatever some of these early TV shows were. Mm -hmm. But it gave me eating money. I was not affluent in those days. Okay. I was a starving student. I was lucky the GI, I was in the Army for a little while, and the GI Bill paid for my graduate degree. Mm -hmm. I was also a graduate assistant at Northwestern, which helped. Okay. But the, when I, from Coatesville, I got a job as assistant manager of a radio station in Racine, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And I was at that station for two weeks, and the manager quit. Mm -hmm. And they made me manager of the station. And suddenly, as though a switch were turned on, I was an executive. Right. With uh, being invited with invitations to be on committees mm -hmm. and uh, to expound on the glory and value of, of what I had to, to offer. What kind of radio station was it? It was a daytime only station, WRAC. And the problem with WRAC, as nice as it was, was the other station in Racine, there were two, mm -hmm. was owned, WRJN, was owned by the newspaper. Mm -hmm. So we were always in second, and they were a full-time station. We were always in second position. Mm -hmm. What kind of format? It was a general format, uh, news and music. Okay. Well, at that time, people began to say to me, why aren't you in television? Which is like saying, why aren't you rich? Right. Well, has that kind of control over his own destiny. Mm -hmm. So I began to answer ads and to solicit attention from television station and lo and behold I got a job largely through duplicity I suppose as a producer director at a station called WKY in Oklahoma City okay and this was a big powerful station owned by the Daily Oklahoman which is the, the newspaper in the whole state of Oklahoma were you married then I was married then mm -hmm. and I had one child who had been born in Racine okay and uh, there was a job where I, it was quite godlike. You press a button and pictures change in thousands of homes. And that's where I learned the basics, really, of motion picture production because the difference between live television and movies is simply a matter of the medium, mm -hmm. not the technique. One day, uh, a fellow with whom I had gone to school who owned a small advertising agency in Chicago, came flying down in a private plane and said, quick, quick, I need a television director for my agency. We are about to pick up the household finance account. Mm -hmm. They insist that I have a TV director. Okay. And he made me literally, in the like Mario Puzo, an offer I couldn't refuse. Okay. So, Bluey, I packed up, came back to Chicago. Well, as it turned out, he did not get... <laughs> <laughs> the household finance. <laughs> okay. Next in the pre-midlife crises. Mm -hmm. But during that period, we were shooting some television spots. Mm -hmm. And 
I, there was a little studio on Wabash Avenue in Chicago called, uh, called uh, Alexander and Associates. Mm-hmm. And typical of this company, there were two equal partners, a fellow named Mike Alexander and another man named Martin Schmidhofer. And Marty Schmidhofer was so reticent that the company was called Alexander and Associates even after Mike Alexander left the company. Okay. Mike had been gone, I guess, about eight months when I started to do business there, and I eventually bought his interest in the company. So I had a half interest in this film studio, but it was not enough to sustain life. And that is where I really gained the background that has helped me for the rest of my professional career, such as it is. Okay. And just to put craft dinner on the table, I've got a job writing copy for the old Morlock agency in Chicago. What did they do? They were an ad agency? They were an ad agency specializing in mail order. That's all Morlock did was mail order. Did you interview with them, or how did you get it? I interviewed with them. He had me write a, sim- a sample piece of copy, which I thought was ridiculously easy. Yeah. And uh, But that, in fact, scared me because it was so easy. He hired me on the spot. Okay. So I began writing copy for Morlock, and that went on for years. How old were you when you started? Mm. Well, I would guess 30. I'm, I'm guessing numbers. Okay, about 30. Yeah. Okay. How many years were you writing copy there? Forever. Long after the film business took hold, long after I had my own ad agency, I was still writing copy for Morlock. Did you have a mentor? Hey, pardon? Did you have a mentor? Did you? Well, the only mentor I would have had would be uh, Morlock himself. Was he? Was he good? He was pragmatic, mm-hmm. and he he also called me son, which I appreciated. <laughs> okay. In fact, uh, I'm guessing the relationship with Morlock ran for close to 20 years. Yeah, kind of like a father figure. Well, he had two sons-in-law mm-hmm. in the business with him. Mm-hmm. One of the sons-in-law was a fellow named Lawrence G. Barton, who they called him Buzz Barton. Mm-hmm. And Buzz eventually went off and founded his own agency, which we, he called BB&A. I think they're still in business. Yeah, BB&A. And I, I began to write copy for him because we had that kind of relationship before. Mm-hmm. So, you see, it, it went on into the next generation. Mm-hmm. Where did the, the what, what was the name of the agency, Warlock? Morlock. Morlock. Amazon Max, O-R-L-O-C-K. And he was a, he was specifically for direct mail. He was strictly mail order. Mail order. Yeah, we used, to, in fact, so old was the agency that when we would run, play, he had a lot of classified ad business. Right. On Wednesday afternoons, we all sat there paying for these ads by stamps. Right. That's how antiquated the technique was. Mm-hmm. But Morlock had a couple of, of philosophical conclusions which really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. One. I want to thank you for listening. This is Michael Sinoff with HardToFindSeminars.com. If you want to get in touch with any of the people we interview, please email me at Michael at HardToFindSeminars.com. That's Michael at HardToFindSeminars.com. H-A-R-D as in dog, T-O-F-I-N-D-S-E-M-I-N-A-R-S.com. Cheat nobody. Mm-hmm. And two, pay your bills. Okay. And I wish that everybody in that business had such a philosophy. Did he have a pretty big agency? No, no, it, no. It was the small. only copywriter. He had old women in there. He had old typewriters. Some of them I felt he'd gotten out of the vault of the Smithsonian Institution. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't the point of it at the time, nor did I care. Mm-hmm.
because Morlock paid me and he paid his people and he paid his suppliers and he paid for his media bills and he paid them for printing and uh, he, it was an ethical operation even though rather hopelessly old fashioned. Were you testing the results of your copy? Always. Even? Always. So it, w it was a science. You were testing headlines, testing... Always. I maintained that particular aspect forever. Mm -hmm. And where did you learn about all that? My pardon? Where did you learn that you that, that's something that needs to be done, testing... I learned it by having a couple of occasions where we didn't test, and then began to wonder, might it have pulled better if we did something else, and we did something else, and it pulled better. Okay. In fact, back at the Bradford Exchange, uh, when my introduction to that company which was uh, very peculiar on its own. They were running little four-inch ads, and they were paying $11 for an inquiry, not a sale, an right. inquiry. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to get that down to $3. Okay. You might regard that as an impossible dream. Mm -hmm. The Bradford Exchange at that time was owned by a fellow named Rod MacArthur, who was the son of John MacArthur, who had founded Banker's Life insurance, mm -hmm. owned half of Palm Beach and the other half of Park Avenue in New York, and Rob was something of a, a prodigal son. Okay. And he had bought a company, a defunct company called Bradford Galleries, which he retitled Bradford Galleries Exchange to sell collector's plates. Mm -hmm. And I had no notion what these were. Well, I'm, I'm ahead of my story here, but it, it, it's okay. Weed. Mm -hmm. And at the time, my own I had founded an agency in, in the Wrigley Building in Chicago, and our biggest client went bust. And you see, at the time, I didn't want mail order. Mm -hmm. I felt that, that Morlock had, was too piddling. Right. I wanted television advertising. After all, I owned film equipment. Okay. I wanted four-color pages in Time Magazine, because that's where the 15% billings were. Right. Well, sure enough, my biggest account, which was a heavy television advertiser, went bust, owing me 90 days' worth of billing, and suddenly I did not have a half a floor in the Wrigley Building. I had a little office in Highland Park. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have a bunch of people around. I was no longer an executive. I was back on the keyboard. Right. I had four people, including me, and here I am moaning about how can this happen to a nice guy like me. <laughs> right, right. Well, uh, there was an agency then, and it was the only direct mail agency I knew. It was called Marshall John. Mm -hmm. uh, those were the first names of the two fellows who owned it, and I don't remember their last names any longer. Mm -hmm. But somebody from Marshall John called me uh, and said, We have a client we can't satisfy. Mm -hmm. Do you want to take a shot at a piece of coffee? Mm -hmm. I asked what was then my standard question. Will I get paid? He said, You'll get paid on delivery. Mm -hmm. The client, it turned out, was the Bradford Exchange. Okay. What is, were you, uh, for anyone listening, what was the Brad, Bradford Exchange at that time? What were they doing? The Bradford Exchange at that time was trying to make a New York Stock Exchange out of collector's plates. Okay. You may think that's an insane idea. It may be in the 21st century that it is because Bradford, I guess, has dropped that notion. But it wasn't then. And people were buying plates with the, and following the listings, the monthly listings, of the supposed value of these plates. Mm -hmm. It was a maniacal scheme conceived by Rod MacArthur, who was a mad genius in his own way. Mm -hmm. Well, I wrote this copy for the, for the Bradford Exchange, and uh, it was pure fantasy, mm -hmm. because produced collectibles are an oxymoron to start with. Right. So, again, it was ridiculously easy, because facts didn't enter into it. Mm -hmm. 
but it was strictly fantasy masquerading as fact. Mm -hmm. So I delivered that copy, and they paid me as I delivered it. And I said, how long has this been going on? I don't owe CBS 85% of this. Mm -hmm. So Bradford became a regular client of mine. And then they asked me to come into their office one day a week. Well, they were in a town called Northbrook, and I had this little office in Highland Park, and it made great sense for me. So I was in their office one day a week, and then it was two days a week, and then they asked me to put together a creative staff for them, mm -hmm. which I did. Were they selling lots of plates? They were selling lots of plates. How were they advertising? What mediums? They were running ads in FSIs. We had a tremendous direct mail program going. We were sending out direct mail, I think, at a clip. Uh, the only people, I think, who were mailing more than we were were Billy, the Billy Graham group. Mm -hmm. How many pieces were going out? Beg pardon? How many letters were going out a month or so? Oh, by the million. Okay. Early on. Mm -hmm. And Bradford had achieved a house list of people who were salivating over the next plate. Mm -hmm. How big of a list? I don't remember, really. It was in the several hundred thousand even then, I think. Okay. But it wasn't segmented the way they do today. Right. Was, uh, that was before we really had computer help. Mm-hmm because uh, computers came into the mixture all toward the latter part of the 1970s. And that's just when I left the relationship with Bradford because I had a thing with Calhoun's. Calhoun's was the best cold list for Bradford. Mm -hmm. Here was an outside company whose list was pulling almost as well as the house list. Who would describe what Calhoun's was? Calhoun's was an organization in Minneapolis which sold strange things such as gold foil stamps mm -hmm. supposedly issued by an island off the coast of Scotland as an official issue. Wow. Uh, it was insane, but it was working. Mm -hmm. And But they had no plates. Okay. Well, here I am, the king of plate sales. Mm -hmm. So I made a deal with Calhoun's to prepare a plate series for them. Mm -hmm. They'd never been in the plate business. Mm -hmm. And I went up to meet with them. Uh, that, again, was a strange story. The fellow who ran Calhoun was a man named Stafford Calvin. Mm -hmm. Went up to meet with him. He said, here's my idea. And he showed me what he wanted to do, which was a Christmas plate paint, uh, from a painting by a paraplegic woman who held a brush in her teeth. Okay. <laughs> Uh, to paint, I said, Mr. Calvin, later, Stafford, of course, when we were on the first main page, I said, yep. costing myself a delight, was kicking myself for going up there. Mm -hmm. I said, people will buy a Christmas card out of pity. They will not buy something to display. Right. The quality of this art is not worthy of that, where people will have to explain, oh, well, the woman's a paraplegic. Mm -hmm. He said, what would you do? I said, I would have a continuity program. He said, can you come back in a week with an idea? Mm -hmm. I said, sure. He was paying the airfare. Okay. A week later, I came back there, and I figured in for a penny, in for a pound. Instead of an idea, I had the entire program written out for a 12-plate series called The Creation. Okay. 12 plates in the book of, of uh, Genesis. Mm -hmm. By the noted artist name, because there was no artist, there was no, no deal. Right. So I showed him this, and it was in copy form only, and he said, well, how are we going to sell this? And I told him the difference between this and a, and a Bradford promotion is we are going to give people matched registration numbers. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that become clear to me at Bradford, people don't care what's on the face of the plate. They care about what's on the back. They're, the they're buying...
allowing for the speculation of the value going up. Exactly. Okay. So you... The backstamp became a, uh, a crucial here. We were going to give them matched numbers, and the threat would be, by telemarketing or whatever else, if they didn't continue with the 12th place, that they lose their number. Mm-hmm. She said, can you have lunch with me and my partners? And I smelled blood. Mm-hmm. It turned out, yes, they wanted to go ahead with this, and they authorized me to do the entire project, including finding an artist to do the 12th place, mm-hmm. having the detail cells made, which we were going to do in Florence, Italy, having somebody else fire these plates. We found a company in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. The whole thing was in my hands to do. Okay. Well, the creation was, to put it very conservatively, a smash. Okay. We killed them with the creation. How did you roll, you mean, when you say the creation, actual production of the designs, or the rollout with it? Okay. went through the roof. Well, they should for a company like that that was pulling for Bradford and never had had its own plate series. What was the offer on the rollout? The offer was that the plates would sell for either, depending on when we offered it, 1995 or 2995 each, you would own your registration number. Mm -hmm. This plate would come with a certificate of authenticity and all the other folder all that came with it. We, uh, when we first started mailing it, we only had two pieces of art. We were eager to get in the mail. Mm-hmm. The artist, who was a man named Yanis Kutsis, was working furiously to give us more paintings, but how fast can you paint? Mm-hmm. So the early mailings only showed a couple of, of plates, and then we fleshed it out with other paintings that Kutsis had done. Looking back at this, it was a lot of guts to do that. But it did work. So was it a continuance? So when people signed up, they signed up for a uh, a, a monthly plate. Yeah, exactly. For the year. And those who charged it to a credit card got it automatically. Those who paid by check, we had it sometimes done to get them. But it usually worked. At, at Bradford, as I recall, the average for a 12-plate series was four. That is, people would collect four. Mm-hmm. Some people collect the first one because we always call it a first edition. Mm-hmm. Those are magical words. Sure. The word charger in subscriptions. Mm-hmm. It's meaningless, but it does have an emotional impact. Mm-hmm. Did each the average at Bradford was four. The average at Calhoun was nine. Mm. So it was a much, much more profound... And it was all going to Calhoun's existing list? No, no. We were buying outside lists. Too. Okay. But uh, with the Calhoun's list, of course, it was uh, without... <laughs> there was never a problem. Let me ask you this. We see, you know, you look in the National Enquirer and all these magazines, you still see collector's plates. Sure you do. You see them in, in the Balassas inserts. I mean, is it, is it basically, it's... This is the origination of this business. It's oh, still yes. that's where it holds, the whole thing started. Actually, the first collector's plate was made in Denmark in the year 1895. Mm-hmm. And until Bradford came along, all we had were the blue Christmas plates right. from Bing and Grundle and Royal Copenhagen and uh, companies of that sort. Mm-hmm. So, yes, uh, Bradford did transform the whole notion of collector's plates. Mm-hmm. Well, with Calhoun, once, uh, here was something else that happened. With the 11th and 12th plate of the series, mm-hmm. we enclosed a little piece of paper offering them a second series called The Promised Land, 12 plates in the book of, of Exodus. Mm-hmm. That was the only advertising for that, and from that little piece of paper, we had a 43% buy-through. Wow. Such was the tenor of the time. Those golden days are gone, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. That's how we were doing. Well, then... Uh, Margot, my wife, who had been working at Bradford, came up to Minneapolis, and the two of us 
began to really rock and roll. And we had a series called The Golden Age of Cinema. We got uh, MGM to uh, uh, allow us to do that for a royalty, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, we had other other plate series for Bradford, for uh, Calhoun, rather. Mm -hmm. At one point, <laughs> during some particularly bitter cold day, we looked at each other and said, this is our last winter here, isn't it? Yeah. And we reached a very quick agreement. Mm -hmm. At that time, we did have FedEx. We didn't yet have fax machines. Right. But we were only meeting with the people at Calhoun maybe once or twice a month. So the two of us went to uh, Stafford and said, we're taking the place in Florida. He quickly said, your deal's canceled. Okay. I said, hold it a second. I said, we'll maintain an apartment here. And... Whenever you need us, we're here. We're only meeting a couple of times a month anyway, and we can work, we can send you stuff by FedEx. You believe here your deal's canceled. Mm -hmm. Margot, to her eternal credit, said, all right. She said, you will pump gasoline, and I'll wait on tables if it's going to be warm. Okay. With Calhoun's curses ringing in our ears, off we went to sunny Florida. Mm -hmm. Where in Florida? Fort Lauderdale. Okay, great. Originally a town called Plantation, which mm -hmm. is a suburb of Fort Lauderdale. Mm -hmm. Why why, did, why there? Did you have family there? No, we didn't have family there, but one of the people, one of the companies who dealt with Calhoun, which was a company called Viking Import House, mm -hmm. was in Fort Lauderdale. Okay. And we had come down to Fort Lauderdale on business, and the fellow who was the sales manager at Viking lived in a town called Plantation. Mm -hmm. And I had shot features in Miami, but I'd never really explored Fort Lauderdale as a location. Mm -hmm. I liked plantations with a settled bedroom type community, mm -hmm. and it just we didn't have any particular spot to go to. Uh, Margot had grown up uh, in the uh, San Diego area, okay. but we felt that since a lot of our business might be coming, and a lot of our travel might be European, we were better off on the East Coast. Okay. So really it was just a, a, a wild decision, which we never have regretted. Then how old were you then when you moved to Florida about? Oh, I am guessing 50. Okay. 50, uh, yeah, close to. Okay. Well, of course, as it turned out, when some of the uh, Calhoun's competitors found we were at large, uh, the phone started to ring. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did the greatest show on earth for the Hamilton Collection. Uh, we did the American Rose Plate for the uh, International Museum out of uh, uh, Alamo, Texas. So you were designing and creating plate campaigns. We were designing and creating plate campaigns. Did a, sale, did a direct mail and advertising go with the campaign? Absolutely. Okay. So you would, Margo would handle the art mm -hmm. and the positioning. Well, she became an expert on putting art onto porcelain because with the ceramic pigments, the colors change when you fire the plate. Right. And, and many a time we would see a plate that started out to be blue and turned out to be green. Okay. She was the expert in that and, and well-recognized within the world of plates for that. Also, she, her whole background was in art, so Margot would put the, the deal, put the art together, and I would sell it. So you had 20 years in the experience of selling plates. Oh, I sold more plates than anybody. Why do people buy plates? People bought plates because it gave them a sense of possession. Many people who could never afford an original piece of art found that they could have what they called fine art in their homes. Right. And often that's how we sold it. Exclusivity was the factor. Okay. Well, of course, with Bradford, it was a different story. It was exclusivity matched up with 
uh, the possibility of a, of a value increase, mm -hmm. which sometimes was fictional, but that, that was the way it was sold. Did each plate have a, um, a different number on the yeah, back? Absolutely. Did they, so they were all individually numbered? They were all individually, not numbered, hand numbered. Hand numbered, gotcha. Okay. I, I know that sounds funny, but that's a sales word, too. Yeah. Of course. Okay. One day, again, the next major change. I had been writing copy for and doing projects for a company out of McAllen, Texas, mm -hmm. which was called the International Museum. Mm -hmm. The fellow who owned that, who ran it, was a man named Frank Schultz. And Frank and Marilyn Schultz were old-timers in the direct mail and mail-order business. Okay. And you were in Florida still? I was still in Florida. Okay. I still am in Florida. Okay. So the uh, one day, uh, one faithful, happy day, Frank Schultz said to me, Hey, do you ever write anything except plates? Mm-hmm. I said, Of course I do. He said, Well, I have another company. And we've had the same control mailing for about nine years, and it's getting tired. you want to take a shot at it? Mm -hmm. Sure. What was he selling? What was this guy doing? Uh, Frank's other company was called Royal Ruby Red Grapefruit. Mm -hmm. And Frank was on the board of the DMA at that time. Okay. One of the sweetest people ever in this business. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a package for Royal Ruby Red Grapefruit, and I beat his control. Okay. About three months later, I got a phone call from uh, Mr. Lewis. My name is Fred Simon. I'm the president of a company called Omaha Steaks. Oh, yeah. Fred uh, uh, Schultz has told me, Frank Schultz has told me, about the package you wrote for him. Do you want to write one for us? Sure. Okay, so the, the owner, the president of Omaha Steaks, repeat his name? Fred Simon. And is he the founder, too? No, the, the company was founded in 1917. Okay. So I think Fred was, I think they're in their fourth generation now, because I'm, I'm still dealing with Omaha State. Wow, okay, so he was the, he was the president at that time. Yeah, he may still be the president or the chairman. Okay. And as I say, you talk about nice people. Yeah. Some of the parvenues in this business are not so nice, but people like Frank Schultz and Fred Simon are gems. Yeah. Well, usually successful people, the, the more successful uh, people are, it seems like the nicest they are. I'd like to think that because I regard myself as a successful. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote a package for Brent Simon, and it did very well for him. And he told everybody. And at that point, the dam broke. Wow. On top of which, I was beginning to write articles for the old magazine called Direct Marketing, mm -hmm. which was owned by Pete Hoke, who is now dead. Okay. But at that time, Direct Marketing was the king of direct marketing publication. Was it the original? It was the original. And when, when did that when did that start? In the 1930s. Okay. And, so you, uh, I stayed with that magazine, in fact, uh, for 200 consecutive issues. You wrote an article on each issue? Every issue was called Creative Strategy. Okay. And the only reason I quit writing for them, even after I'd begun to write for other magazines, it turned out that somebody else whose name I will not give you <laughs> began to rewrite my old articles from, oh, maybe nine or ten years before, mm -hmm. and they were appearing in the magazine. Under the, uh, here were two columns called Creative Strategies. One was mine, and one was this fellow's. Was his in the form of an ad? or a No, no, it was in the form of a, co of a column. Mm -hmm. And I called the then editor of Direct Marketing, who obviously hadn't even been there when I first wrote these things. Right. I said, are you at all aware of what, of what this is? 
And, and she said, oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. And the next month there was another one. Well, at that point, I had written about 195 articles. I figured like some baseball player in consecutive games, mm-hmm. I'll go to 200 and quit. Mm-hmm. Because by that time, I was already entrenched with a much, I felt, more contemporary magazine called Direct. Okay. And for Direct, I was and am their curmudgeon at large. And I'm in, on the inside back cover. And I love the magazine, and I love the people who run it. Ray Schultz, the editor, knows how to edit a magazine. Mm-hmm. I'm also the copy columnist for Catalog Age. Mm-hmm. I write a monthly article for a selling newsletter called Better Letters. Mm-hmm. And for two uh, magazines in the uh, UK, uh, I write columns. For, for Catalog and e-business, I write a, a column on Catalog Copy. And for one called Direct Marketing International, I write a column called Copy Class. You're doing a lot of writing. I'm doing a lot of writing. How much writing are you doing a week? I have the keyboard most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, when that guy was knocking off your articles, you own the copyright on all those articles, right? I didn't even, I, uh, Denny Hatch told me that. Denny Hatch told you you own the article? You own the... He's militant on that point. Mm-hmm. You didn't realize that was your work? That, that you, you didn't realize that you, at that time you had owned the rights to all that? It didn't bother me. I didn't, that didn't bother me that I owned it or didn't own it. What bothered me was that the magazine didn't care. Okay. So they didn't... Anybody who wants to reprint one of my articles, God bless them. Right. But I don't like the idea of someone simply swiping a notion and then usurping it under his or her own name. Were, were they just copying them outright? Well, a word change here or there. But okay. When it's ten rules for letter writing, and they're the same rules, the conclusion has to be obvious. Okay. So you, you because they didn't do anything about it, you just said, forget it, I'm not writing for you anymore. That's exactly right. Okay, you never went after, you never even went after the guy who was knocking them off. No, no. I, well, what, what, what am I going to do? Yeah. Donald or somebody? Mm-hmm. I'll say I spilled some coffee on myself and it was your fault. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, I just didn't take that militant point of view. I was, I was irritated, yes. But You're right. But anybody who was that poverty-stricken in terms of intellectual curiosity mm-hmm. uh, is more to be pitied than censored. Yeah, exactly. And, and some of the stuff, of course, was not only obsolete, but it became, it was by that time so well-known that it, uh, I felt that any editorial judgment would have killed it to start with. But uh, I'm, I'm giving you opinion masquerading. Sure, sure. Well, so uh, here I sit, and uh, I'm, I'm looking at, out at the ocean oh, from the 26th floor of what is regarded as one of the premium uh, buildings in Fort Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. And I thank my stars that I got into direct marketing in the first place. I had a company called Communicomp. Mm-hmm. And Communicomp originally was strictly my wife, Margo, and myself. Mm-hmm. And Communicomp celebrated its 25th anniversary in the year 1997 or 8. But by that time, the spirit of change was in the air. I'll tell you what it was. Okay. We had moved the company to Florida. And of course, now with email and fax machines, when fax machines are almost obsolete, right. I do business primarily by email. Right. And I deal with clients all over the world. I have a client in Japan. I have two clients in the UK. I have sure. And in Germany. Uh, and it's, it's bang. It's instantaneous. No, oh, it's beautiful. I love it. I love being alive while this is going on. Yeah. Well, uh, one day, I had a phone call. 
and a man said to me, Mr. Lewis, my name is Charles Pinkler, and I am the president of Bodell Jacobs Canyon and Eckhart. Mm-hmm. And who were they? I tempted to say, yeah, I'm the candidate I am. Fortunately, I, I didn't say that. He said, I think we should get together. I said, well, come on down. By that time, our daughter Carol had joined us. She had been running an ad agency in, in Chicago, whose name I can't remember, a direct marketing agency. Mm-hmm. And she was sick of the climate there. She said, I want to come down to Florida and join you. I said, by all means, because Carol is immensely talented on a creative level. Your daughter? Yeah. Do you have one daughter? We have four daughters and a son. Okay. Actually, it's, it's, a, it's an amalgam of two families. It's a second marriage. Okay. But everybody, it really, we regard ourselves as, as one family. Sure, that's I'm great. I'm that there is no uh, filial impiety in this family. Okay. So Carol came down and changed the complexion somewhat. She wanted to open an office. That was her background. Mm-hmm. And instead of the two of us working out of our house, which we continued to do, Carol had an office with a receptionist and account people and people running around in a whole art department and a bunch of people on Macintosh. and I holy mackerel. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, doing work for some good carnival cruise lines and First Union Bank, and it was really very nice. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I told Chuck Peebler to come down that weekend because I figured, okay, on a weekend, he can't see how few people we have. Mm-hmm. He came down, and he invited Carol Markle and me to come up to New York to meet the people at Roselle. Mm-hmm. And within very short order, Communicomp became a uh, owned by Roselle, Jacobs, Canyon, and Eckhart. Okay. I became chairman rather than president of Communicom, and I was also chairman of a strange, uh, unreal organization called BJK and E Direct. Mm-hmm. Was that part of that that company? It was part of the, yeah. It was supposed to be an umbrella over the overall uh, direct operations of Bozell. It didn't really work out that way because uh, they had a get off my turf attitude in some of their offices. Mm-hmm. Although it really wasn't unpleasant. Okay, so Communicom, Communicom was you, your wife, and, and your your daughter. Well, we were the three principals. Gotcha. Well, by that time, we had employees, yes. Okay. But we were the three principals, and each of us got a three-year employment contract with Bozell. Okay. Well, as we approached the first anniversary of our relationship with Bozell, another company called True North, which was Flip Conan Building, mm-hmm. bought Bozell. Mm-hmm. And... We didn't know whom we were working for. Mm-hmm. There was a whole new set of faces. Mm-hmm. Chuck Peebler came down once again, and he said to me, he said, I've got a deal for you and Margo if you want it. And I said, what's the deal? He said, well, True North has given us restructuring monies, and if you like, I can buy out the last two years of your contract at Margo's. The benefit to you is you get the money now. The benefit to Carol is she can hire five or six people and staff up that operation the way it should be. Okay. So I considered this for four or five seconds. <laughs> Can I ask what kind of money they bought you out at? Is that I'm not at liberty to disclose? Okay, just I sure. wish I could, but I can't tell you. But it was good money, and it didn't take you too long to think about it. That's exactly a, that's a wonderful interpretation. Okay, go for it. So, uh, to my total delight, when the uh, papers came through, they released me from the two-year non-compete that had been built into the original contract. Great. 
I want to thank you for listening. This is Michael Sinoff with HardToFindSeminars.com. If you want to get in touch with any of the people we interview, please email me at Michael at HardToFindSeminars.com. That's Michael at HardToFindSeminars.com. H-A-R-D as in dog, T-O-F-I-N-D-S-E-M-I-N-A-R-S.com. And... Uh, so I was free to, uh, some of these old clients, I don't know, not just United Nations Children's Fund, Barnes and Noble, people who, and for that matter, Omaha Steaks, who didn't want to pay that fierce Bozello, came back. Mm-hmm. They were very nice. Mm-hmm. And so we almost, in uh, a defensive posture, formed a DBA called Lewis Enterprises. Okay. Which is the name I'm doing business under now. Okay. About eight months after that, or a year after that, a bigger agency yet called Interpublic, which is McCann Erickson, bought True North. Mm-hmm. You talk about this fish swallowing a fish swallowing a fish. Is this still happening today? Oh, yes. It's, it's the consolidation is fierce. Well. Anyway, Interpublic very quickly closed Communicomp altogether. Mm-hmm. They felt it was a flea in the ear. I felt it was, it was profitable. You see, profit is a matter of percentage. Right. And in terms of total contribution to the Internet empire, the interpublic empire, I mean, rather, it was nickels and dimes. Mm-hmm. I, I guess they didn't want to bother with it, so I was glad to be out of it. So as an agency, Communicom, as an agency, you're making your money as an ad agency percentage. Not anymore. That, no, no, but no. at that time? At that time, no, 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 no. We were all, always direct as Communicom. Okay. We were not placing space ads. We would turn that over to somebody else. Actually, if somebody wanted to, pay, like, to run space, we would create the ads and turn it over to Franklin and Joseph. Mm-hmm. I think it's now called Roger Franklin Advertising. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of deals did you set up with a client when you in Communicom? If you had a direct uh, direct mail client, and there were all kinds of deals. Mm-hmm. One would be on a monthly retainer basis, mm-hmm. in which whatever they wanted to do, we would do over the period of a month. And every six months, we would reevaluate, seeing on whether somebody got hurt or not. Okay. And the other was on a per-job basis. Mm-hmm. To this day, I have a rate schedule. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not here, somebody else can quote what a, what a letter costs, what a brochure costs, what catalog copy costs, what email costs, what uh, uh, web design costs, and it, it, it makes it a little more comfortable uh, in standardizing prices. Nothing on percentage of gross sales? No. Why not? Because I, first of all, there are two reasons. One is I don't want to be somebody's policeman. Mm-hmm. And the other is I don't want to be somebody's partner. Right. I know people who have done that and they have wound up always in antagonism. Mm-hmm. There's an old saying, there are two times when partners fight. Mm-hmm. When they're making money and when they're losing money. Right. And I have many, many times, I would guess it's got to be in the hundreds, been asked, you want to make a deal whereby we share? Mm-hmm. No, I don't. Because, first of all, if I'm going to write a piece of copy on that basis, I don't want any editing. Right. And many clients resist that because they, their own ego is on the line. And they may have a better idea for all I know, but I don't like that. That's not the way it's, it can work. So be your is How do I know what the numbers are? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to send an accountant in there. You don't want to screw with it. I don't want to screw with it. Okay. I never had any need to. Talk about ego. Over your career, how many times have you seen ego destroy a campaign? As a guest, 20,000. <laughs> Where people, I remember way back when I had my little agency, I had a, an account that was selling air conditioners. This fellow wanted his golf pro 
to do the show, a TV show, mm-hmm. where he could show off for his golf pro. And it was a total disaster. The man was a mumble mouth to start with. <laughs> and it just didn't, it, it was, I remember the words. If you don't want to do it, we'll get somebody else. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that was his, his option. The best way to sell an, advertise, an advertisement is to show him his own name. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, we've seen that many times. See, Lee Iacocca had a certain posture in that respect. But many a time now, we'll see other people who come up there and uh, car dealers or real estate people or investment people who want their names up there, who want to, their friends to say, hey, I saw you on television. Pure nonsense. We call that image advertising. I, you see, to me, image advertising is a way to avoid having to count the, the, the results. Mm-hmm. And is it is this is the problem? Is that because the agencies don't want to be accountable for the results? Well, the agencies are terrified. Or else they feel, somebody said, hey, I know what we'll do. We'll put him in the spot. We'll put Dave Thomas in in the Wendy's spot. Mm -hmm. And that way, if the spots work where he rose, and if they don't, he's the bum. Right. And meanwhile, all his friends will say, hey, I saw you on television. And that thing started off poorly, and and in the middle it was all right, but eventually, before he died, it became something of of a joke. So you come from a direct mail background for all those years doing plates where you're accountable for for your your efforts. Yeah. And it's either sink or swim. And so you see advertising agencies, you watch TV today, and you look at these image-based advertising. What's your thought when you're just sitting there watching TV, seeing this stuff? My thought is that many people are wasting many millions of dollars. Some of these are so obscure, one can't tell what they're all about. Is it getting worse? As, as you get worse, and I'll tell you why. The TV stations, in their consummate greed, are splicing two commercials together, often for two differing and competing makes of automobile, without even a dark frame in between. Mm-hmm. And the result has to be great confusion on the part of the youth. Another aspect is this apparently insane desire to not tell you what it is they're selling. What's the purpose of marketing? In my opinion, and I'm not about to change it at this late date, it's to cause the viewer, the listener, the reader to perform a positive act as the direct result of having been exposed to that message. Right. And how many television spots don't do that? Now we have email, which in my opinion is the future. Email to me... And I've often said this, I say it in speeches, I've said it in in books. To me, email is the most important evolution in communication since the Gutenberg Bible. Right. What do we have in email? We have duplicity, right and left. And in my September 15th column in direct, I ask companies such as Continental Airlines and Sprint who try to obfuscate rather than to communicate. Free, free, free. Well, there's no question the web is price-driven. It positively is. But that doesn't mean you can't tell people what you're giving them for their money or tell them that what's free is free if or when. Those two key words, if and when, have some posture. Absolutely. The integrity of the medium. If you absolutely studied and understand how to write, how to write a head, just one concept, if you could learn and master how to write a good benefit-oriented headline, you could blow the competition away. Just, I mean, think about there's so much poor 
advertisement and, and letter writing skills, it's just it would be an unfair advantage, even if you had the mildest education on how to write a headline. I agree with you absolutely. So there's a lot of opportunity. A lot of people who listen to this are new to marketing, are new to learning and understanding how to write copy and what advertising is all about. Well, to those people, I would say, please, please, don't destroy the medium by assuming that everybody out there is a P.T. Barnum sucker. Exactly. What do you think is the most important aspect in writing a communication? I'm not going to say... I would call it the clarity commandment. It's too important to be called a rule. Okay. And the clarity commandment is this. When you choose words and phrases for forced communication, that's the business we're in, forced communication, Clarity is paramount. Don't let any other facet of the communications mix interfere with it. Okay. What about the headline? What's your view on how important is a headline? Well, the headline, of course, determines whether somebody's going to read through it or not. And that becomes even more important in email where the subject lines, some of them are so impossibly stupid, you wonder whether a half-wit oyster wrote those. But the headline has to be provocative without being duplicitous. Mm-hmm. Do you have any um, any mentors or or, or um, not, who who are some of your favorite educators? I mean, I'm sure you know with all the writing you've done, you do a lot of research on your own. Who are some of the mentors that um, you've learned from? Like, if you could if you could implore somebody to study the great masters of copywriting, well, there's uh, only one, and that's Claude Hopkins. Okay, tell me, what do you know about Claude Hopkins? Well, you see, he was the first star in copywriting under a man named Albert Lasker, mm-hmm. who founded the agency which later became Foot Conan Belly. Mm-hmm. And Lasker gave this man free reign. And then there was John Caples. Mm-hmm. John Caples wrote the classic ad, Do You Make These Mistakes in Africa. Uh, no, that was... Uh, Do you make, yeah, you're right, in English. They laugh when I... No, no, no you, that was Sherwin Cody. Oh, okay. That ad ran... The Sherwin Cody ad run ran unchanged for 45 years. Right. Can you imagine an ad running 45 insertions today? Mm-hmm. Impossible. No, uh, it was John Cable's wrote, They Laugh When I Sat Down at the Piano. That's right. So uh, the whole idea was to be provocative so a state of mind was created as people read into the ad. And I've tried to adapt that to contemporary communication. Mm-hmm. Who was Sherwin Cody? Sherwin Cody was uh, an ancient character, even when I was a kid, mm-hmm. uh, who I have no idea what his, uh, where, where he was born or how long he lived or any of that stuff. But uh, he was running these ads in, in boys' and men's magazines and uh, in, 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 in most of the consumer publications. And that was a standard ad for 45 years. Do you make these mistakes in English? Right. How about Clyde Bedell? I'm not that familiar with Clyde Bedell, except for the name. Okay. So let's talk about, you know, when I originally contacted you, I was searching for great advertising books, and I went on to Amazon, and I saw your book, greatest, the greatest, world's greatest advertisements. 
Oh, you mean the world's greatest direct mail sales letter? Yeah, by the way, I sent you a check out for that. That's very nice. Yeah, I couldn't find the book anywhere. That's, that's strange, too. It's out of print. Well, that's horrifying to hear because what happened was that the publisher of that book, which was NTC, National Textbook Company, mm -hmm. was bought by McGraw-Hill. Mm -hmm. And since that time, I've had nothing, no communication at all from anybody there except the, the semi-annual royalty statement. So I didn't know it was in or out of print. So tell, let's talk about, talk about that book. How did that project originate? Who approached you on it? What happened was that Richard Hagel, who was my editor at NTC, and later founded his own imprint called Raycom Books, R-A-C-O-M, and they are the publishers of one of my books called Marketing Mayhem. Mm -hmm. uh, he had told me that an old friend of mine named Dick Hodgson had a book on, on I've forgotten the title, but it was similar, about great sales letters. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had two of my letters in Dick Hodgson's book. Oh, two of your letters are in there? Yeah, sure. Okay. And... Uh, but Dick was pretty much retiring and was not about to update that book, and some of the stuff was pretty old. And I did not want to cross paths with him because we go way, way back. So I contacted Dick and said, with this bother? No, I don't care. So uh, Carol and I, Carol Nelson and I, wrote 500 letters right. to everybody we had ever heard of in direct marketing. Right. In, to agencies, to individuals, to byline names in magazines, asking for submissions okay. for this for this book. And you, some of the stuff that came in was funny, I guess is the word. Mm -hmm. People regarded this as, as superior writing. Right. We asked for, and of course, as, as I'm much familiar with awards, verification that the stuff was effective. Okay. Everybody lies. Right. We, much of the judging was, was quite subjective on our part. From this group, we picked either 100 or 120 candidates. And those are the letters that appear in the World's Greatest Direct Mail, uh, mail Sales Letter. Okay. Some are older. Yeah, well, there was a man named John Yeck who has died since this book came out. And from Yeck Brothers in Dayton, Ohio. Right, right. And uh, some of the stuff that he had written was a classic even to this time. I had stuff from Bill Jamie, another old friend, who another uh, these people were dropping like flies. Right. Who, who died? Who gave me what I regarded as a superior piece of his work? So I, I'm holding in my hand the uh, the greatest direct mail sales letters of all times by Richard Hobson. Who is Richard Hobson? Rick Dick Hodgson was a fellow student with me at Northwestern mm -hmm. back uh, in the antediluvian days and Dick got himself a job with the Franklin Mint in its early days of, of just becoming organized right. for a man named Joe Siegel who was a legendary name by the way in direct marketing mm -hmm. Joe Siegel in fact also founded QVC the network the sales network so he's the founder of it yes okay uh, they've gone through a number of hands since then mm -hmm. but Dick was his creative director and we stayed in touch over the years and Dick wrote that Dartnell book which again is long since out of print I imagine okay uh, on, on uh, direct marketing right the greatest direct mail sales letters in Philadelphia, I'm told, in retirement. Okay, so he had a, he had was he a um, a writer? Oh yes. Okay. Okay, excellent. So you do have I'm looking here. You have like you have multiple letters in this book. I don't know. I thought it was two. There may be three or four. I don't know how many are in there. Yeah, we didn't know that. Well, I didn't know that. Well, you see, I'm glad I didn't bring it up. That way, it sounds better coming from you. If you could think of, um, if you could think, pick one direct mail 
campaign that you're most proud of and that was the most exciting, what would it be? What sticks out in your mind? Like asking which of your children you love. <laughs> the most successful campaign I ever had was for, it's dumb, mm-hmm. I'll tell you in advance, mm-hmm. was for a series of five Cinnabar collector's plates for Calhoun's where we almost sold the whole thing out from the test mailing. Mm-hmm. It had to be the most successful plate mailing ever. Wow. I loved it because it was pure fiction. Mm-hmm. Every word of that thing was pure fiction. Really? And it sold because we made up this folklore mm-hmm. about a Chinese seer named Bao Cho. In fact, we couldn't... It was the five senses. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to call it the five senses. I called it the five perceptions of Wow Cho. Right. And Stafford Calvin, to his eternal credit, went along with the idea. Mm-hmm. And Margot went to Taiwan to get these plates made out of cinnabar. Mm-hmm. And did we kill them with that campaign? Okay, but we talk about the real motivation why people buy these plates. One, these were pretty, by the way. There was more to these plates than just the collectible aspects. These look good on the wall. I still have mine. Mm-hmm. But you think the stories, the, the pure fiction is what moved the plates? It's all folklore. Mm-hmm. Wow, interesting. So you've got 12, how many books have you published? 26. 26 books. With all those books, do you have like a, a writing deal with a publisher where you put out a certain amount of books every year or what? No, my principal publisher right now, I would guess, would have to be Amicon, American Management Association. Mm-hmm. They are an honorable and fast company. They published also what is now my favorite book called On the Art of Writing Copy. Okay. I don't, you know, as you pointed out, here's a book from MTC, National Textbook, and it's out of print, and I hadn't been told it's out of print. Mm-hmm. My original publisher was Prentice Hall. Okay. Uh, Prentice Hall was bought by Gulf and Western and merged with uh, Simon & Schuster. Right. And everybody I knew there left. And that's why I went to Dartnell, and Richard Hagel was my editor at Dartnell, and he went to MTC, and I went with him. And that's the evolution of this. Right. Some of the more specialized books, such as uh, Open Me Now about envelopes, mm-hmm. or How to Write Powerful Fundraising Letters, mm-hmm. were published by a specialty publisher in Chicago called Bonus Books. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a, 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 a surprise area arrangement of any particular publisher. Right. But all these books that you write, you do you have control? Like if you, let's say you wanted to create a catalog of your own books and sell them direct yourself, can you do that? I suppose, but I've never had any desire to do that. You haven't? No. Well, that's what publishers are for. Right. I know a lot of people who publish their own books. Well, God bless them. I don't see any reason to do that. Right. What could you tell anyone who's new into it? What would you say, you know, if you had a son who was 16 and he said, Dad, I want to get into writing. What kind of advice would you give to somebody to have a successful career in writing? I would, if it's writing to sell something, I would say saturate yourself in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And I think if a man should start reading women's magazines and women should start reading men's magazines and both of them should read children's magazines and comic books and just get, see as much of the world as they possibly can through everybody's set of eyes, which prevents this proprietary I am God approach where you start hurling thunderbolts from Mount Olympus and nobody understands what it is you're talking about. Mm-hmm. What do you think the biggest mistakes you see in people who start out in writing and want a successful career as a writer make? 
I think it's the arrogant assumption that what I like is good for everybody. Mm-hmm. And we get back in the time here. Okay, no, no problem. I tell you what, we'll wrap it up. I mean, it's been a it's been a pleasure and an honor, and I think I've extracted some great information from you. Well, I've enjoyed the conversation. Aside from the, it's not really an interview; it's a conversation. It is a conversation, and that's my style. You know, I just talk to you on that level. If you have any questions I haven't answered, just email me, and I'll be glad. To what I'll do, yeah, I'll get this recording up on the site in a hidden place. If you want to just check it out and okay it with me, I would love to be able to share it with any of my. Uh, listeners. You got it. Hey, thank you very much. Okay, my friend. Bye. It's Michael with Michael Sunoff's HardToFindSeminars.com and another bonus tip. How would you like to turn your $28 book or ebook or even a concept in your head into a $3,900 information product? I'll provide you the secrets on how to do this if you'd like a completely free 30-day trial of my system for turning your simple book or even just a concept in your mind into an information product that you can sell for $97, $197, or even as much as $3,900 or more. This system includes a whole range of tricks and tips to help you pack your audio program full of great stories that take control of your listeners' brains. My information product creation system comes with my personal guarantee that you'll create an information product worth from $97 to $497 that's designed to sell like hotcakes. This is a 30-day free trial. If you'd like information on this, please email me at michael at hardtofindseminars.com. In the subject line, write in all caps, $28 book, and I'll email you information on how to turn your $28 book or even a concept in your mind into a $3,900 information product. Hi, this is Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff, hardtofindseminars.com. Here is another bonus tip and a valuable service that I offer to select clients. If you can talk into an ordinary telephone, you can be selling your own high price audio programs in as little as seven days. This is the easiest way on earth to create a series of powerful audio recordings for your own information product. I call you on an ordinary telephone and interview you live on a series of related hot topics about your niche subject. I take care of all the editing, all the technical stuff, and I give you the finished MP3s or WAV files and audio transcripts. I only have time to give this to personalized service to a few more carefully selected clients. If you're interested in developing and creating your own valuable information product that you could have complete in as short as seven days and be selling for as high as $300, $500, even $3,900, please contact me at michael at hardtofindseminars.com. In the subject line of your email, please write info product information in all capital. Make sure I have your name and a way to contact you by phone and we can talk about your specific ideas. Or you may call me at 858-274-7851.
Hi, it's Michael Sinoff here with another bonus tip from Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. It's called an audio infomercial. Your audio infomercial, which I create for you, will sell more products of yours faster, easier, and for less cost than any conventional advertising method, and I guarantee it 100%. Imagine catching yourself at concert pitch talking about what makes your business or your product service unique, what makes it special. Imagine taking a professional recording of that perfect sales presentation that I create for you and giving it to your prospect as an audio CD or an Internet download from your website. I can do this for you faster than you ever thought possible with my personalized audio informational recording service. If you're interested in this unique service, please contact me at michael at hardtofindseminars.com. In the subject line of your email, in all capitals, write audio infomercial, and I will get back with you with more information. Hi, it's Michael Sinoff here with another tip from Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. This tip is one that is dear to my heart. And the reason why is because I know what a difference it can make for your business. It has to do with editing your audio recordings. If you are using audio online or offline to sell, market, and educate your prospects, this tip will be the most important tip you ever hear from me. Editing your audio content before you publish it to your site simply gets better results compared to unedited audio content. Think about this. A new song on the radio may be in the editing studio for months before it's released to the public. A new movie may take years in the editing process before it's released to the big screen or on DVD. Well-written sales letters, online promotions, books, and commercials are all meticulously edited to perfection before they are released. You would never dream of releasing an unedited version of any of these sales vehicles. So why would you publish unedited audio? Unedited audio content is abandoned by the listener faster, it produces less sales for you, and it actually destroys your credibility as a publisher. So why are we seeing so much unedited content proliferating the Internet? The reason is simple. There are very few people who offer audio editing services who know what they are doing. Editing audio is kind of like plastic surgery. It's part skill and part an art form. You need someone with both the skill to do it and someone who understands marketing and selling. A poor result can be gained by both a skilled surgeon as well as a good technical editor. Who you choose to do your audio editing can be one of the best investments in your business. At hardtofindseminars.com, we have been editing online and offline web content for six years. We have perfected a proprietary editing system that has been proven to get your customers to listen to your audio content longer and to listen to it more often, resulting in more sales for you more often, and with clean, edited audio, you can demand more money for your products and services. It's just like in life. You only have one chance to make a first impression. Every time you release and publish unedited audio content, you are projecting a poor, 
sloppy, I don't care attitude that turns your prospects off. Do your prospects a favor. Service them. Give them your best. Do them a favor by giving them professionally edited audio messages, interviews, teleseminars, and selling promotions by editing your audio. We provide full audio editing services that are fast and at a reasonable rate. We know that editing your audio content can easily pay for itself 20 times over. Call me, Michael Sunoff, for more information at 858-274-7851. I'll spend some time on the phone with you. We'll determine what audio content you're publishing. I'll be glad to offer you a free consultation on my ideas. I'll review some of your audio, and together we'll come up with a solution that gets you better results. Thanks for listening. Here is another bonus tip from Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. Did you know that I have about 25 hours of exclusive consultations on my audio clips page, letter G? If you go to HardToFindSeminars.com, go to the audio clips section. This is the section where I have over 117 hours of audio interviews. Page G is nothing but consultations on information product development. You have over 25 hours of me giving my best advice on how to create, develop, produce, market, and sell audio information products. Go to page G if you want to learn how to create and market your own information products. Enjoy. There's an interview in the section of the audio recordings at Hard to Find Seminars. It's with a business buying expert. His name is Art Hamill. If you go back to my site, hardtofindseminars.com, and go to the product section, along the left side in light blue, you will see a list of topics. Look for the one that says business buying. Click on that link, and you'll be taken to about seven hours of exclusive interviews with Arthur Hamill. Arthur Hamill has purchased multi-million dollar businesses, over 200 of them in his lifetime, and he will tell you how to do the same thing. It's some fascinating content, and I wanted you to know about it. Here's another tip. It has to do with podcast. Did you know that not only are all 187 hours of my audio recordings available for free online at my website, hardtofindseminars.com, but each one of these audio recordings is also in the form of what's called a podcast. A podcast is a simple way for you to digitally and automatically subscribe to online and new recordings and have them downloaded into your mobile audio player, like an iTunes, iPod, or any other digital audio playing device. But the way you find my recordings on podcasts is by going to one of the number one sites called iTunes. iTunes is a virtual library for music, spoken word, and podcasts. The music and spoken word audios you'll pay money for, but the podcasts are absolutely free. And you can subscribe to my podcast. All you do is go to iTunes. You'll automatically download the iTunes software, and then you will search 
Michael Sinoff in the subject line, and you will find most of my audio recordings right there available for you to download. This is great if you're on the road or you're on another computer, and if you have a mobile device, it'll automatically suck them right into your digital MP3 player, and you can take any of the audio recordings on the road with you. They'll also automatically notify you of any new recordings that I post as podcasts. Also, if you search through Google or or Yahoo, or any of the major search engines, Michael Sinoff, and then podcast, you'll find other resources with other podcast search engines that host my podcast. I hope this helps, and if you're a podcast listener, I think you'll be happy about this. So go over to iTunes and download the iTunes software and search Michael Sinoff, and you'll have all my audio recordings available for you right there. If you'd like to hone your skills as a copywriter, I have available for you the largest collection of one of the all-time master copywriters. His name is Claude Hopkins. Do a search on Claude Hopkins or go to my website, ClaudeHopkinsAdvertising.com. Claude Hopkins was one of the founders of modern-day advertising. He was one of the all-time legends in the industry. And myself and a partner have authored a book called the Claude Hopkins Advertising Collection. We have also searched thousands of newspapers to pull out all his classic ads. He's been responsible for building companies like Pepsodent Toothpaste, Palmolive, Schlitz Malt Liquor, many household products like puffed wheat cereal that you're still using in your kitchens today and he was a master and the genius behind this. He was responsible for many of the cars we drive today like the Oldsmobile. Go check it out. ClaudeHopkinsAdvertising.com If you want the ultimate in education on how to write copy you cannot pass this up. So go on over to ClaudeHopkinsAdvertising.com and learn from the best. Here is another bonus resource for you, and it's about a section on my site that has about 15 hours of audio interviews with copywriting experts, including Brian Keith Voiles, including Carl Galletti, including Eugene Schwartz. You will not find this content anywhere. It'll take you to an entire collection of audio recordings, MP3 downloads, and transcripts of some of my best interviews on the subject of copywriting. You'll be able to play them, download them, print the transcripts, and it's a collection you will not find anywhere else. If you want an education on copywriting, you will not find anything better than this. If you go back to my site, and in the products page, along the light blue section down on the left, you're going to see another link that has a lot of value, and it all has to do with joint ventures. Go to that page, and you're going to hear about an offer on a joint venture system like no other. If you read the letter there, it'll describe all the benefits, and the offer is virtually risk-free, meaning you can order my joint venture system, have it sent to you without paying a dime, have 30 days to review it, to digest all the information, and only if you're happy with it after 30 days. Do you pay? It's an offer you can't lose on, and if you're enjoying this content, you're really going to love what I have waiting for you on the joint venture link at the products page at hardtofindseminars.com. Go check it out. I think you'll really enjoy it.